You're listening to Cortez Radio, CKTZ 89.5 FM. The opinions you're about to hear belong to the people expressing them and are not necessarily shared by Cortez Radio, its board, staff, producers, volunteers, or listeners. This is a condensed version of The World is Watching COP26, roughly 28 minutes of audio taken from a 54-minute Sierra Club BC production broadcast directly from Scotland. It was hosted by Anjali Apaduri and Flossie Baker of Sierra Club BC. Welcome everyone to the World is Watching webinar. I'm Anjali, this is Flossie. We are in Glasgow, Scotland at COP26. That is the Conference of Parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. We will do our best to pull out some of the most important threads for you. So COP is a space where governments of the world are gathering to solve this global problem of climate change. And it's also a space where civil society is invited to be a part of that process. And it's not actually that we're invited, we have a right to be a part of that process. And we are actually a critical part of that process. I've actually sort of grown up through these COPs because this was my first entry point into climate politics about 10 years ago. So this is actually my 11th year of following these negotiations. And in that time, I've seen the COP go from a global collective agreement that was supposed to be strongly legally binding in nature and would hold every country of the world to its fair share of responsibility for reducing emissions I've seen a downslide in the last 10 years from a regime that was legally binding or at least attempting to be legally binding to then around the time of the Paris Agreement, switching away from legally binding measures and into a kind of pledge and review, which is basically where every country makes voluntary pledges about how much they're going to reduce their emissions with a series of reviews built into that until the present day now in Glasgow, where we're sort of seeing a cop that half of those pledges haven't been met. And now we're just seeing a cop of announcements, basically. The, the first week that we were here was the World Leaders Summit. And it was basically heads of state from all over the world gathering here in Glasgow. And there was a whole series of glitzy announcements. Canada was part of several of those, which we'll touch on later. But it's concerning for us who are part of civil society tracking these negotiations because announcements are not the same as legally binding commitments and announcements don't have accountability built into them. And so we don't have the trust and we don't have the track record to know that governments making these announcements are actually going to follow through on them. And unfortunately, what we've been seeing, because today is the last (laughs) day of COP, What we've been seeing is that what has been announced in these big announcements that have happened over the two weeks is not the same as what is being negotiated behind closed doors. And so Canada especially is showing up in a certain way publicly and showing up in a different way behind closed doors. And that's really concerning to us. So what is the objective of the COP? Why does the world come together every year? when we could just be doing stuff at home, when it could just be Canada taking climate action at home. 
the answer to that is that, well, climate change knows no borders. It is a truly global issue. It's an issue that we all have different levels of responsibility for as countries of the world. It's an issue created historically by the industrialized countries. The responsibility for the amount of emissions that are in the atmosphere right now disproportionately rests with the richest countries in the world, which also happen to be mostly the colonial states and also happen to be countries that are quite wealthy and more capable of dealing with the impacts of climate change. So at its heart, climate change is an issue of justice and of equity and of burden sharing. It's not about getting everybody to pitch in equally. Unfortunately, what we've seen is that the countries that have the most responsibility for the largest part of that burden are the ones that really don't want to pay their fair share. So we've seen a real lagging of these talks. On to some practical issues. This COP is the strangest one I've ever been to because there's such limited participation because of the pandemic. And I think it's so important to link the situation of vaccine apartheid in the world right now to the issue of climate change. There's such differing and disparate access to the vaccine, which affected participation at the COP. It, you know, it falls along the same fault lines. The places and the countries that don't have access to the vaccine are the same ones that don't always have the most power in these talks and yet have the most to lose. That has created an even greater inequity that we have to mention whenever we talk about the COP because it plays into the same power dynamics that climate change is all about. There's a lot of voices missing from the COP, a lot of people who couldn't get visas and who couldn't get the vaccine. And there was very, very limited civil society participation. Civil society is non-government and non-private sector. These are the voices that hold our countries accountable. These are the voices that go back to our countries and support social movements that push our governments on key issues. We are the voices that bring moral clarity to this process. Without us, it's a very empty process. Another huge issue is that there's a giant fossil fuel lobby present in these talks. And that presence has been growing and growing over the past few years. And it's obviously completely at odds with the goal of this whole COP, which is to limit dangerous emissions that will cause runaway climate change. I want to go into a couple of the big sticking point issues at this COP so far. One of these major sticking issues is the idea of net zero. And as many of you may know, Canada has agreed to a broad climate target of net zero emissions by 2050. And there was much made of this agreement. But what we're seeing now in the conversations around net zero is that net zero is a very dangerous framing. It allows for us to lock in a highly inequitable framework to achieve lower emissions a framework that many would actually call climate colonialism because it erases the historical responsibility for climate change and it relies on projects that largely take place in the global south and largely take place on indigenous lands and have been linked to human rights abuses and land grabs. And what I mean by that is net zero isn't actually zero. Net zero means that you can continue to emit as long as you... <coughs> 
have an offset project or a carbon capture project. It's not real emissions reductions. It's relying on offsets and it's relying on market-based mechanisms to achieve lower emissions. So it doesn't actually solve the problem of climate change because climate change knows no borders. The slogan at the COP has been net zero is not zero. Not surprisingly, the biggest polluters, both corporate and governmental, are the biggest champions for net zero. That should be an immediate sort of red flag or arrow <laughs> pointing to the fact that this is not a actually effective framing. If you add up all the net zero plans of every corporation and government, there is not actually enough land on earth to account for all those net zero plans. For example, in Canada, we could say that we plan to reduce this much emissions and offset this much emissions. And the way those offsets take place is maybe a tree planting project in Zambia. So this tree planting project in a place that is not Canada would require land in a place that is not Canada and would require that land to be either taken from someone or not used for other purposes like growing food or whatever it might be. So all the land that is required for all these net zero projects, the math just doesn't add up. There isn't enough land on earth. Net zero also relies on a point in the future in which we will magically develop technologies that will help us get to zero emissions these sophisticated carbon capture technologies that don't exist yet. So there's another slogan that's been going around at the COP that's stop chasing carbon unicorns because the whole idea of net zero is sort of chasing this future unicorn of technology that will somehow suck the carbon out of the atmosphere. So many groups who are on the front lines of net zero projects, indigenous groups, call it a continued form of colonialism and of continuing to profit off the backs of developing countries. They talk about net zero as a frame that entrenches power dynamics that have been present in these talks for three decades now. The second big sticking point at these talks is this idea of nature-based solutions. And if you're following coverage out of these talks, or if you're following climate rhetoric from companies and from governments, you'll hear this term nature-based solutions a lot. If you listen to Stephen Gilbo, our environment minister, talk from COP26, you would hear mention nature-based solutions. And it's another one of these framings that is similar to net zero. It contains within it a, a sort of fundamental contradiction, which is that we can somehow achieve real emissions reductions without addressing the fossil fuel industry, but rather relying on these projects that are market-based usually to achieve emissions reductions. Another red flag is that nature-based solutions are beloved to corporations, to the private sector, and to the biggest climate-delaying governments. Another red flag with nature-based solutions is that a lot of these solutions focus away from preserving existing ecosystems and onto relying on technological fixes rather than on just saying, okay, we're not going to log this forest or we're not going to you know, put a fish farm in this part of the ocean. A lot of these nature-based solutions are built under these colonial constructs where they're developed without cooperation with local communities or the indigenous peoples whose land they require. They're a solution that requires more land and therefore sort of deepens those existing divides. 
Okay, I'm gonna stop talking and let you hear it from uh, the president of Barbados. Your Royal Highness, Excellencies, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, the pandemic has taught us that national solutions to global problems do not work. We come to Glasgow with global ambition to save our people and to save our planet. But we now find three gaps on mitigation, climate pledges or NDCs. Without more, we will leave the world on a pathway to 2.7 degrees and with more, we are still likely to get to 2 degrees. These commitments made by some are based on technologies yet to be developed and this is at best reckless and at worst dangerous. On finance, we are $20 billion short of the $100 billion, and this commitment even then might only be met in 2023. On adaptation, adaptation finance remains only at 25%, not the 50-50 split that was promised nor needed given the warming that is already taking place on this earth. Climate finance to frontline small island developing states declined by 25% in 2019. Failure to provide the critical finance and that of loss and damage is measured, my friends, in lives and livelihoods in our communities. This is immoral and it is unjust. If Glasgow is to deliver on the promises of Paris, it must close these three gaps. So I ask to you, what must we say to our people living on the front line in the Caribbean, Africa, Latin America, in the Pacific, when both ambition and regrettably some of the needed faces at Glasgow are not present. What excuse should we give for the failure? When will we, as world leaders across the world, address the pressing issues that are truly causing our people angst and worry, whether it is climate or whether it is vaccines? Simply put, when will leaders lead? Our people are watching and our people are taking note. Are we really going to leave Scotland without the resolve and the ambition that is sorely needed to save lives and to save our planet? How many more voices and how many more pictures of people must we see on these screens without being able to move? Or are we so blinded and hardened that we can no longer appreciate the cries of humanity? stop that there but uh, it's definitely worth a watch their whole speech is eight minutes long and she really strikes to the heart of some of these equity issues that i mentioned where it's developing countries that that are facing the impacts of climate change first and hardest who are sort of really begging the rest of the world the richest industrialized countries to step up their game all right i'm gonna pass it over to Flossie to talk about some of these announcements that Canada has been making. I'll shift gears a bit and touch just briefly on some of the things that Canada has committed to, you've probably seen in the news, and then because this is the Sierra Club BC webinar, uh, BC's particular contribution. So back at home, you might have seen some flashy headlines that 
just a few days into the first week of COP, there was a big announcement around trying to end deforestation by 2030. This sounds great. We were excited to hear a bit more. It's really important to uh, remember the distinction between deforestation and degradation. So deforestation is when a forest is logged and it turned into something completely different like farmland. And degradation is when uh, a forest is cut down or a part of a forest is cut down, it's degraded into a different quality of forest. It might even be replanted in the form of, of tree farms. And that's what happens a lot in Canada. And so whilst this commitment to end deforestation by 2030 is really good news for forests in the Congo Basin. It doesn't really change much for old growth forests in Canada. The next big announcement was Canada, along with others, pledged to end international fossil fuel finance. But this was the least possible thing Canada, Canada could have done whilst avoiding any of their substance, substantive obligations under the Paris Agreement. And so the small group of countries, including Canada, said they would end funding for fossil fuel projects abroad, which doesn't mean they're ending funding for fossil fuel projects domestically. And again, the devil is always in the details with these announcements because the funding for fossil fuel projects abroad is only going to be stopped for a certain class of projects, projects with unabated emissions, which means those are projects that have no offsets attached to them. So just like a fracking site that is just going to be continuing to emit recklessly for an undetermined amount of time. But to get through this loophole, all a fossil fuel company has to do is as soon as 2030 hits, just slap an offset project or a carbon capture project onto their existing fossil fuel infrastructure plan and they can continue emitting. So the announcement is good and that's it is a step but it is the barest barest possible minimum and it doesn't actually address our huge oil and gas sector in Canada so definitely something to not applaud. The final announcement was pledging to put a cap on oil and gas emissions and again this sounds great this sounds hopeful and it's lacking any legally binding framework so it's lacking any accountability to actually keep that promise. Without that, we fear that it's just a, a nice sounding aspiration. It's pretty easy to fall into the kind of mantra that you just hear repeated on the news over and over, which is that some progress is being made, but Canada is not doing enough to protect us and it's doing the less than minimum that is required. We, we felt the need to put in a special slide on BC because BC is actually getting quite a lot of attention internationally for its climate plan. It's won two awards since COP began and is really being kind of celebrated as the pinnacle of what a, you know, a climate plan could look like. This is pretty frustrating because just know, a week or two before COP began, the Union of BC Indian Chiefs came out with a letter saying in the strongest terms that they believe that this climate plan is inadequate. And it was backed by, I think, 310 organisations and counting. So civil society and Indigenous leaders in BC roundly came together to 
just announced that climate plan and saying, said very clearly that it was not in emergency mode. And so for it to come to COP and to kind of be lauded as the pinnacle of what it could be was just, yeah, it was it was frustrating. Um, what was kind of creepy was that the second award that it won was from an organization called the Under Two Coalition, in, uh, implying that they've already kind of given up on that 1.5 target. So earlier this week, we held an action inside COP to try and get media attention really, getting the media to see that there was international opposition to BC's climate plan because of this huge LNG-shaped hole in it, because of the, the continual support of, of fracked gas in the province. And so we don't have a picture of it at the beginning, but we had a, a large piece of uh, red velvet curtain and a friend who is an actress and we hosted our own fake award ceremony for BC's climate plan and she really hummed it up and we had speakers and we caught the attention of tons of people just outside the COP cafeteria and managed to get that story into quite a lot of different news outlets. I should mention with that action what was really cool about it is that we linked up with a, a group in Japan uh, called Friends of the Earth Japan, and they actually have an active campaign to stop LNG in BC because it, it gets shipped over to them. And LNG projects in BC are actually funded by a public Japanese bank. So it's Japanese taxpayers' money going towards funding LNG projects in BC. So there was this really cool international cooperative solidarity moment where they joined us and they spoke at our action and they actually have a they actually have a demand letter that's been signed by 93 organizations from 30 countries specifically about LNG in BC so we were able to show up to cop and say there's international opposition to how you're supporting this industry in BC those are the 310 organizations yet calling for a, a more fitting climate plan for the climate emergency. There's a lot of false solutions flying around the COP. We mentioned a couple of them, net zero and nature-based solutions. We need to focus on actual indigenous-based solutions, which involve largely giving land back to indigenous people and incorporating land stewardship practices that indigenous people have practiced for time immemorial. And so that's why the land back movement that is building momentum and, and growing across Turtle Island to us really captures the heart of climate justice because it brings in a logic that is the opposite of extraction based neoliberal colonial logic and that caused the climate crisis in the first place. And so one cool way that this is happening in BC is through indigenous rights and title cases. And we've had several of these landmark cases in BC, all the way from Delgamuk in 1997 to the historic Chilcotin case in, I believe that was completed in 2012. And, and we actually, part of our role at this COP was to support one such case that's happening right now that we believe is really significant and important. And it's being taken by the Nuchatlet Nuchat Nation which is on the northwest part of Vancouver Island. Their traditional homelands are on what is now known as Nootka Island. And for the past four years, I believe they've been engaged in a 
a historic rights and title case against the BC government. One little nation of like 160 people against the BC government. So we're lucky enough to travel here with the Tai Hatwit, which is the high chief of that nation. He came all the way to Glasgow and brought that story to the world stage here and did a presentation on their precedent-setting case. This case will go into court on March 14th in Vancouver. So whoever here happens to be in Vancouver, we will have a bunch of ways to engage and build public support around that, that really important case. So we want to play a little video for you just to introduce this case. It was the best world that I know of growing up. Had everything that we needed. Every morning we'd go to the beach to harvest sea urchins, abalone, mussels. We'd all eat together and it was always so much fun. Those were the best days of my life being out in New Chatlands. When the non-Aboriginal people hit our shores, they seen the wealth of the ocean, they seen the wealth of the land, but their wealth was personal gain. I see them logging all around us and I don't see anybody asking permission. When the logging company comes in, they log and they leave and it looks like a bomb went off. It's all connected, the fish, the forest, We've depleted them to an extent where we need to look after it. We need to set aside something. We've never relinquished the chat, so we truly believe it's ours, yeah. We're not just fighting for Nechatlik. We want to show the world that we can manage better, protect better, that we can enhance better, and there'll be enough for everybody. Nechatlik was a paradise. I think it can be that way again, and I want the world to be able to come and visit New Chaplets to see the beauty and just want it back. Everybody will know about New Chaplet, this tiny little community that's taking on the province, Canada, and the logging companies. We're 180 strong, and we will win. So donations are still sorely needed for this very expensive court case that's in its final few months. So we sort of brought the story of the Nuchatlet to COP. And on the left in the blue vest is Tai Hatwit Jordan Michael, who is from an unbroken line of hereditary chiefs that is 12,000 years long. His ancestor was the first person to greet Captain Cook when he landed on the shores of Nootka Island. And so it's a really powerful and sort of poetic full circle moment that after they welcomed Captain Cook and the colonizers to their homelands so many years ago, now they are going to court to take back their lands. So we want to close just a quick bottom line, just to return back to here, Glasgow, COP26. The goal is to get to 1.5. And 1.5 is the maximum level of warming that the world has agreed to. 1.5 is a political figure. It's not a scientific figure. It's actually way higher than, than many frontline communities would have liked. 
but that is the global target. And so every action, every commitment, every announcement that Canada makes and that BC makes has to be in line with that 1.5 degree target. Otherwise it's not real. And so that's why we call out solutions like net zero and nature-based solutions, because when you dig in and you ask the right questions, they don't add up to 1.5. And so that's our sort of uh, guiding star as, as we move forward from COP26. Uh, the, the, the negotiations are ongoing right now and they will likely be going until late Saturday night. We have a draft text on the table and that text unfortunately falls far short of the 1.5 target and it enshrines some of the harmful solutions that we've talked about, like like carbon markets. And so we wanna be able to have a voice uh, while our government is at COP and we want to hold them accountable when they return from COP. So next week, we expect to see a lot of hubris in the media about Canada being uh, back on the stage as a climate leader. And uh, we're, we're just, we just uh, wanna pass on the, the fact that, well, that is not true. 